we begin with prayer, the gracious and heavenly Father, for this day we give you as ever uh, thanks um, and still in us, Lord, gratitude for uh, for all of our gifts, most especially for your forgiveness of us, and may that then be the uh, good soil in which the seed of your gospel and the gospel of forgiveness would also take root. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to see everybody this morning. Um, part three of a four-part series on forgiveness. Next week, uh, Jason Wallace will wrap it up. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, as I started it, um, I, I, I didn't think I was. I was very disjointed. I didn't really have an line, that's the way I call it, in terms of where I wanted to go. Um, I guess this is a confession, seeking forgiveness, perhaps. Um, uh, didn't have a line where I wanted to go and had too much material because that's how I sometimes, when I'm underprepared, I overprepare, that sort of thing. Uh, so today what I hope to do is, is, is start off with Luke 7 and then... Uh, last class did engender some some conversations, some some questions after class, and then some emails, and even some questions last week. So I thought the rest of the class, uh, it'll still be tied in to Luke 7, to the scripture, uh, kind of look at some kind of on-the-ground questions about forgiveness. Um, when does forgiveness become enablement? That was one person's question. It's a good question. Um, how do you distinguish between the two? Those kinds of things. And so also with that, um, putting it out there for y'all here at the beginning to see if you have any questions. I'd love questions from the floor. In fact, it's my favorite sort of teaching uh, forum is when I sort of set the table after about five minutes and then it's just kind of Q&A, Q&R, questions and responses. Uh, that's what I enjoy probably the most rather than sort of me preparing an hour-long lecture. Um, so that's where we're headed today, Luke 7, um, and then uh, I've got a few areas that people asked about, and then maybe that will also uh, connect with folks and come back in the middle of class, and we can make it into a conversation. Um, any thoughts so far as we begin? Thoughts about last week, Jason Wallace's class? Um, thing I remember mostly about his was his uh, really poignant use of a short story um, it became a movie which I had not seen, but which is now on my list, called Atonement. Um, it was a really helpful illustration to me personally, so I'm kind of put that out there. Uh, so Luke 7. Um, this is a story a lot of us will uh, uh, be familiar with. A sinful woman forgiven is what it's typically called uh, in the pericopes. That's just the fancy language uh, that has most... Bible translations put little section headings up there. Of course, those weren't original um, to the text, but we, we titled the pericopes, the passages in, uh, in Scripture. Uh, these passages, like the stories, they, for some reason, in, 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 biblical, in the biblical world, they're often called pericopes. Um, so now you've got that for, for your cocktail party tomorrow night. Um, we were looking at a pericope yesterday, and... and uh, Anyway, um, a sinful woman forgiven. There's other stories to, in, uh, in Matthew, Luke, and no, Matthew, Mark, and John, where very similarly, it's usually Mary, it's named Mary in John, right before uh, the last week of Jesus' life. Um, she comes and does something very similar, and that's uh, weep and anoint Jesus' feet with oil and wipe his feet with her hair, 
two different events. So this has probably happened at least twice in Jesus' life. This is much earlier, um, uh, the context. And so just to set that out. So in Luke 7, a sinful woman forgiven. <clears throat> One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, not this, this is not Simon Peter, but the name of the, the uh, Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. So stopping, it's in the first paragraph, reset the table. Jesus, um, the friend of sinners, but also moving in the world of the Pharisees, of the establishment, the world of the man, uh, he's... Uh, He's always walking the border, to borrow a phrase that, that Luke also describes it, uh, walking the borderline, walking the line between all these worlds being equally offensive to, to all. Uh, and so he gets invited into one of the Pharisees' houses. Now, why is this offensive? Well, it's offending the people whom the man is oppressing, all of the sinners, the drunkens and the gluttons. That's what he was just described as earlier in Luke, uh, as a friend of a of sinners and himself a drunken and a glutton because he goes in and he drinks with them and he eats with them and all that. Um, uh, so he's being equally offensive because after he comes out of the gutter, so to speak, with the riffraff, then he goes up to the man's house in Manhattan and he's equally uh, connecting to them. So Jesus is just going all over the place here. Um, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table that would be typical. They would sort of sit at a very low table and, and kind of their feet would be out with their heads at the table and sort of like the hubs and the spokes of a wheel. That's kind of the picture here. Um, that's probably how the, uh, the Last Supper was too, in fact. Um, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, a little parenthetical expression, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And so imagine the audacity of a woman, the Edda, um, a woman of the city, a prostitute, who was a sinner, actively sinning, uh, had the audacity to come into the established Pharisee's house, into Simon's house. Something was certainly compelling her. It was an expulsive power that expelled her. And I'm setting up a language that I'm going to use later expelled her through every social norm from where she once was into what she now is, thrust her forward into, uh, you know, the, let me just keep the metaphor, into, uh, you know, a Manhattan penthouse. Um, from the slums underneath, she, uh, she breaks every custom, every norm, uh, without regard, with abandon, and comes and, in, and, and, and places herself at Jesus' feet in the Pharisee's house and brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Um, standing behind at his feet, weeping, remember his uh, reclining, kind of reclining, and so he's sort of here with his feet, uh, with his head and his feet going out, and everybody's kind of doing that. There'd be some others there. Uh, and then she starts weeping. 
this is not a normal scene then. It's not a normal scene now. I mean, if this was here, there's a lot of drama that you can read into Luke. Well, all of them, really. Um, but Luke gives us all the details to make a real sort of visual connection to these stories. Uh, so she comes in, breaking all the customs, and then she starts weeping. This expulsive power, this power that expelled her from where she was, crossed the class and, 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 and religious line, thrust her into the other one, and she's just there weeping at his feet. Real dirty. I can go on about the feet. I think we know that from our classes here and even our Sunday school class days as children. You know, the feet were gross. Um, Whenever I'm around talking about how gross the feet were, I think of a man named Benito in Bolivia when I got to travel there you know, every year for, for many years as a, as a much younger man. Um, one thing I did almost every time I went, uh, this is when I visited the, the Amistad mission, and we'd go to uh, this agrarian village up in the Andes Mountains named Aramisi. And there was a, a mountain that towered over the, uh, the village named Watuasi. Um, it's an... Uh, Quechuan name, um, uh, the Great Mount uh, Watuasi. And it was a good hike. We always wondered how high it was, probably probably 16,000 feet, something like that, maybe 14, I'm not sure. But it was an all-day hike up and down. And uh, it, was, it was enough that even after I'd done it 15, 20 times, I still wanted Benito with me because there are always these places you go the wrong way and you're just like, this isn't going to help me any. Um, and so it's good to have somebody who's got a field up there. Uh, so Benito would take us, and sometimes it would be so steep that I'd be walking and trying to breathe at altitude and all that stuff, and Benito would be right in front of me, and of course his feet are at my eye level because we're just kind of going up these switchbacks and stuff like that. So I got to stare at this man's feet. Um, I still think there's a market for these shoes. This all has a point. Um, uh, sandals that they made out of old tires, which I just thought was the coolest thing in the world. And so you'd be walking in there, and the sandal prints would, uh, would have like Goodyear stamped <laughs> in the ground or something like that, just recycled rubber. Uh, I thought that was cool. But then I started staring at his feet, and they're just gross. I mean, they're just disgusting. Um, this is a, He's probably in his... He probably was 30, um, but he looked like he was 60, because it's just hard, hard agrarian life up there. Lived in a mud hut, could build all that up. And feet just aren't what you pay attention to. You know, toenails grown over, um, deep, deep calluses, so much so, the cracks in his feet were no exaggeration, you know, Eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch thick, you know, just deep fissures in his feet. Um, hard, crusty, you know, just tools is what they were. Extravagance. To express one's affection and hospitality. To invite somebody into your home and say, take off your sandals and let me wash your feet. Let me wash those tools that receive next to no attention uh, and and clean them. So it's all that, plus a lot more religious significance that we don't even go into, um, and social and otherwise. Uh, but that's what this woman is doing. Um, she comes in breaking every custom systematically, has been abandoned from her old life, thrust with an expulsive power into a new position. And she's sitting, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, and she began to wet his feet. I can cry when I think about this. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Um, anytime Jesus is being anointing, anointed, there's always foreshadowing of his death, always a foreshadowing, always a sense of his being prepared to be the Lamb of God uh, 
forgiven for the sins of the world, not for the world only, but for my sins, for this woman's sins. And this giving, Romans 5, that while I was yet sinning, God demonstrates right now his love for us in this, that he died. That is the expulsion. That is the <coughs> power. Torpedo 1, fire, out. Uh, to become something new. To become something completely other. And this is, this, this is a picture of someone who is other than they were before. So she's there, and she's completely abandoned and lost at Jesus' feet. And what happens? We see the divide. Here's Simon the Pharisee. Now he's removed. He's over here. And in his head, Jesus plays the Jedi here. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said, he said to himself, talking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. For she is somebody spatially divided from me. The line is firm to him. If, she, if he were, because he's trying to figure out who is this man, who is this Jesus who we keep hearing about and who is causing such an uproar so that later all Jerusalem, speaking hypo, uh, with, with, with hyperbole, um, all Jerusalem is going out after him. Uh, and he's thinking all those thoughts, the self-righteous division thoughts that I'm here, she is there. Jesus has no conception whatsoever of the way things work in this world. I got a sense of the economy of the human heart. This person's uh, not who we think of. Uh, and he's just really sort of comfortable in his insulated world. And then Jesus, the Jedi, comes out answering him. Remember, he didn't ask a question. He was just thinking. But Jesus comes out and answers him and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now I wonder how Simon's inflection is. I mean, because he's just thinking all these self-righteous, delicious thoughts. And Jesus says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm here. Um, and then he tells him this story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. Jesus, the storyteller, just, just away. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's about two years worth of wages, um, and the other 50, about two months. When they could not pay, the moneylender canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love the moneylender, him, more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning towards the woman, five and a half feet away, and then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she, Jesus is really playing into his mind, the division, this line that separates, you know, for she is a sinner and I am not. Jesus is right there. He's in the psychology, if you want to call that, of this man. Do you see this woman? He keeps the separation. He says, I'll play your game. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to keep my feet. Says, you want to play the game of division? I'll show you division. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, getting all that division, you know, certainly and prominently placed in his line. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, let's call a thing what it is. You want to call divisions? You want to call boundaries? You want to call things with neat sort of compartments and boxes? Therefore, I tell you this, she is a great sinner, uh, 
but they are forgiven, for she loved much. Her love, not the cause of the forgiveness of her sins, but because she has been expulsively thrust forward, away from her old and into her new, to this new expulsive power of a new, uh, of a new affection, it's a Puritan phrase, uh, she's now here and she can't stop loving me. She can't do anything other than what she's doing. And you're remaining removed, outside, set apart, self-righteous, calling yourself your own salvation. Uh, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Small love. You want a way to have small love? Keep believing that you, in your own way, Simon, are okay. That you're sufficient unto yourself. Um, and your heart will remain insulated and, and limited to a very, very, very small love. A self-love. A bent-in love. Curvata sensei navel-gazing love. Uh, and that's where you'll remain. But... Uh, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even begins, who even forgives sins? Several times in the Gospels, um, in Mark and Luke and in Matthew, that's, a, that's the great question. Who is this man? Um, at the end of uh, when Jesus calms the storm, when he's halfway three and a half miles across the Sea of Galilee, and, uh, and he says, peace, be still. The disciples' proper response, who is this man that even the waves and the wind obey him? Who is this man who would welcome a sinner to wipe and anoint his feet with her tears and drop in with her hair? Drop, when she drops her hair and wipes them with her hair. Who is this man that has no box into which we can fit him? Uh, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Um, there's so much more I could say about this, this little story, um, but I'm going to stop. See if there's any feedback, and then we'll, uh, we'll pick this up. Um, though that are, those that are forgiven little, love little. Those that are forgiven much, love much. The forgiveness of the woman who was a sinner, uh, who was ungodly, an enemy of God, who was yet, who was weak, and who was yet sinning. The five, four ways that Romans 5 describes us. Uh, they love much. Forgivenness as the fount of love. Um, feedback, thoughts, questions? One yes. That's okay. The rest of the time is going to be kind of where we want. Anything symbolic about lying down to eat because it seems like an awfully uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> I can make an answer up. Um, custom. Uh, I might say, what's that, Archie? Do you have a? I just said that's a good. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna think it's probably not so much symbolic as practical. Now maybe I'm completely wrong here. I know it's been received wisdom for all that. <clears throat> But they didn't have tables and chairs and all that. They had a, uh, you know, uh, maybe a small table, very small table, probably just a, uh, you know, some covering on the floor that they could place some of the very simple food. I mean, their, 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 
their, their meals would have been substantially different than ours in the way that they consumed food, having to prepare it and wait for it and all that. So it's, it's a pretty different conception. But they would um, they'd spend a lot of time on the ground. Um, so it's pretty natural for them to, to do that. But I don't, I'm, that's my hunch. I, I'm going to have to see. It's a good question. I find it very uncomfortable. I don't like picnics. <laughs> I like picnics at nice concrete picnic tables because um, I like to sit. I don't like I don't like to uh, I like to do Indian style. Anyone else? Because I'm gonna kind of go through some bullets and all that. Well, then thinking about forgiveness and forgivenness and uh, guilt being, as I said this two weeks ago, uh, guilt really being the language of forgiveness, that forgiveness implies guilt, the distance. This was J.D. Koch, who was just here, um, described this in one of his sermons that I listened to before he came here. Um, the distance between the ought and the is. I know what I ought to be, but what I am, those are often always two different things, and the distance between the two is my guilt. Uh, that guilt needs to be atoned for. That's Jason Wallace's great illustration last week. Um, atone is a compound word uh, to be made at one. So to atone for a sin, to atone for guilt, is to atone for that distance between the, the is and the ought to make those at one. So that's the language of forgiveness. Um, to be uh, the language of forgiveness is the language of atonement, um, of at one of being brought back together. Um, that then also then, yeah, I'll go here, begs the question, no, begs the distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is the, the, uh, the act, both the past act, the present act, and the ongoing embodied process going you know, throughout of, of, uh, of dealing with that guilt. Well, no, actually, the atonement is the dealing with the guilt. Uh, but then the reconciliation is the bringing together. And the two things are not the same. Um, could say more about that in a little bit, but that's an important point that a lot of people sometimes miss. Um, I, you know, I don't want to forgive them because I don't want to talk to them. Those are two different things. Um, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Um, to forgive somebody does not mean being best friends with them. Uh, the example I give when I'm counseling, and it's, it's a harsh one, but um, a woman who is raped uh, does, needs to forgive her rapists, singular or plural, not for their sake, not for his sake, but for hers, so that they will no longer have lordship and mastery over her life for years going forward. Um, needs to be made uh, clean, have that debt released, but that doesn't mean that she needs to be reconciled to those people, um, especially if they're if they're strangers or if they remain actively threatening or hostile. I mean, there's all you know. That then becomes a concrete question, which is, you know, needs to be dealt with concretely. But I think you understand in that illustration the difference between the two: forgiveness and reconciliation. Now the word says, "Be ministers of reconciliation," um, as much as with this within you, live at peace with all people. Not easy, um, but it's not. It's not. It's not blind. Yeah, Frank. Yeah. Um. 
What does that look like? It's easy to say, well, I forgive them. But if you never want to be around them, they're seeing you. Yeah. Did you really? Somebody asked me after the class last week, um, and I'm going to be wrong in a lot of places here, but I'm going to write in a few by the Holy Spirit's guidance, so come Holy Spirit. Somebody asked me afterwards, Gil, is it, is it humanly possible to forgive somebody? Um, and I thought for about three seconds, I said, I really don't think so. Um, not a real injury, not one that's, that's actually, you know, like the example of the rape, for instance. No. Um, why? Uh, and what does that mean, concretely going forward? Uh, it's a robust understanding of the human condition. It's a robust understanding of the continuation of sin. Um, in articles, yea, sin doth continue even amongst us who are regenerate. Meaning after the Holy Spirit has come, we've been regenerated. Even this expulsive power of a new affection comes into our lives. We still retain some vestiges of the old Adam significantly. Simul justus et peccator, at once simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time. That sinfulness is a scorekeeper, is a ledger keeper, has a memory, cannot have things erased. So in that sense... Um, it remains in our bones, always. Um, what does that mean? It means there's not an easy bow here. It means it's not tense less. But on the front end, we're recognizing there's a lot of tension when you get close. Um, and, and, and when does it get close? When the injury is grievous or when the relationship is a particularly close relationship, a, a sibling, a parent, a spouse, a child, something like that. Uh, and then Luther started the Reformation with, uh, so to speak, um, with the nailing of the 95 Theses in 1517. Um, 500th anniversary is coming up in two years. Hoping our church is going to do a lot for that. Uh, and the first, let's see if I can get it right, the first thesis uh, said, when our Lord spoke of repentance, um, he referred, well, I can only paraphrase. Um, he spoke of repentance being a lifelong process because we remain dead in our trespasses and sins. So I need to get back to your question. Let's stay too far away. Um, so what does that look like? It means you call a spade a spade and you say, this really hurt. You recall the hurt and you don't shy away from it. Uh, in the Who's the Westboro Baptist man? Fred Phelps? Is that who just died this week? Um, you know, the pastor, the one from Kansas who was known, he and his church, for, for, for picketing a lot of funerals, especially people that died from AIDS and that sort of stuff. He died. Um, I saw several articles about that. Um, so if I can even get a quote. Uh, one person said, um, forgiveness begins not with the dismissal of guilt, uh, that is, not with attempts to diminish or deny the harm that was done, but with an acknowledgement of it. You can't forgive the innocent, after all, only the guilty. So you call a spade a spade, and you say, this really, really hurt. You allow the feelings to be felt. And then, from our own forgiveness, we begin to, uh, this is tenuous, this is hard, to place the other person in a context and see that they also are trapped in their trespasses and sins. Uh, and then that which I received, I, as I am able, offer forgiveness. 
So what did I just say? Because I can see so this is serious. People are looking really serious at me, and it's, just, it's proper. Um, you recall the hurt. You allow the feelings to be felt. Forgiveness, which involves guilt, can only be embodied if the guilt is actual. And if you actually see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, feel it. And so you're there for a while. That's for a long while. Um, then, from your forgiveness, you hear the, my language? Make sure, because I mumble sometimes. From your, not forgiveness, but your forgivenness, your passive tense positioning on this plane that I, that my, my own sins, which are manifold and wicked and many, are grievous unto me. you got to tap that vein. Uh, for forgiveness to have anything other than something like a forgive and forget and let me just sort of grin and bear it and use denial as a means of dealing with it, which works for a season. Um, but to get beyond that, anti-denial, call a spade a spade, saying this really, really hurt, this is why it really, really hurt. Uh, but then realizing my own forgiveness, my own context of either what I have done or so easily could do, given the right construct of environment or whatever else you want to put on it, uh, then you begin that process of repentance. And what is that? Uh, literally, it means mind change, um, a change of one's mind and orientation. Fitzsimmons Allison, last Lent, totally helped me when he said, uh, it's really not metanoia, but metacardia. It's not a massive change of mind, but a massive change of heart. Uh, that the heart of the old Adam actually gets expulsed and becomes something new, similar to the woman here. And, uh, and you have a power source that's different. And you begin to, uh, to adopt a new posture. Yeah? I had a friend who was a Marine during World War II. Well, it's partly, you know, it's the same, same God, Old and New Testament. Um, and gosh, you know, I, I, and this is what it brings up. I mean, it's real, you know, right there. It messed him up. Yeah. Um, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Um, where is it? Jeremiah, maybe? I don't know that. I know it's repeated in Romans. Jeremiah or Isaiah. Um, maybe Job. I should know that, and I don't. Um, but I do know it's in Romans. There is a place where, as we're leaning into this, in order for it not to be Lord and Master of over, over us. No, no, it sounds very selfish, but it's the way for freedom and release for your friend to come to a place to whatever extent. There's going to be a ceiling. There's going to be tension. Uh, to, uh, to give it over to God with the sense that 
vengeance is his, and it's not mine to repay. Um, the currency of forgiveness is pain. It's a phrase that I used last time, which I didn't explain very much from Tim Keller. It really, really hurts. And the desire is to repay evil with evil. Um, really. And that has to be dealt with. That has to be atoned for. That feeling has to be felt. Um, that action, which may have happened as a reaction to, uh, to blindly go over and you know, slice up that man, you know, if he could have. Um, all that has to be put in here and, uh, and felt and then contextualized from our own place of forgiveness and then given to God for a lifetime, which is to say forgiveness always involves suffering. To forgive somebody, massive amount of hurt. Um, it's never free. It's never easy. Uh, to forgive someone, as the Lord forgave us, of course, it was uh, it cost him dearly. I don't want to preach that out in some sort of you know, he did so much for you, the least you could. It's not that at all. But forgiveness is never without cost. It always involves suffering. And your friend has suffered. I'm sorry. Are you? This is a little relationship thing, but I hope it's appropriate. You said, you know, you want to, you know, deal meanness with meanness or whatever. Okay, the opposite of that is to withdraw, mm -hmm. which is very convenient, usually mm -hmm. worse. And here, I guess my question is, there are some people, obviously you're not ever going to be, you, you might forgive in your heart, but you're not ever going to be able to have a conversation or reconciliation or whatever. But I think our inner selves, to protect ourselves, withdraw in order to make sure it doesn't happen again. Absolutely. It's the old thing of toxic people make you toxic and you don't get away. You know, Absolutely. So to me, it's such a fine line between withdrawal and then not being perceived as you're mad or you haven't forgiven or whatever. It's, it's more of a, I think it's more of a personal protection. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. The line is it's very, very hard. You know, and again, it's not tense less. There's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of tension. How do you know the difference between forgiveness and enablement? Um, withdrawal and forgiveness, that sort of thing, you know. And I'm comfortable, obviously, as a therapist, um, to use therapeutic language. Uh, it's a fine line. Um, I would say the prevailing marker to distinguish all of these things, how do you tell the difference between forgiveness and enablement? Enablement meaning, you know, uh, my son who is 24 and, and has never had the easy way out, uh, never taken the easy way out, and has abused alcohol and drugs and been in the wrong sort of friend, all that stuff. And he comes back to me for the 16th time says, Dad, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. Can can can, can I stay with you again? This time I'm not going to steal your liquor and, and, and take your wallet and, and, and 
and go to Jackson Hole again. Um, uh, am I enabling behavior? Or am I forgiving? Um, I'm not going to answer that question right now. I am going to say the distinction between the two. Enablement usually involves some element of denial, minimization, um, compartmentalization, rationalization, all those isations from psychology, defense mechanisms in Freudian language. And forgiveness calls a thing what it is. It calls a spade a spade. Um, I'm, and I'm not going to stand here and I, I have a hard time really being a whole advocate of tough love, as it's sometimes called, because that's my son. What am I going to do? I don't, I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to try to call a thing what it is. And then am I going to sort of say, no, I might. Am I going to say, yeah, come in, come home, son, come home. Well, I might do that, too. That's where there's just a whole lot of tension. There's a whole lot of gray area. And it's harder when it's the first degree, a son, a spouse, a parent, a sibling. It's pretty easy when my best friend's cousin's roommate's dog's uncle is in that situation. It's like, well, no, don't give him that money. I mean, he's just going to go and, and waste it. You're, you're being an idiot. Why do you keep giving it to him? Um, it's too easy. It's too easy to write a book about that and sort of let that go. It's harder when it's your own. Yeah, baby. Mm-hmm. Protect, you gotta protect yourself. Absolutely. Hedge, a moat, yeah. a buffer. After you call a thing what it is, and you're not withdrawing, fight, flight, or freeze, defense mechanisms, defense mechanisms, what do they do? They defend against actual or perceived threats, so they're real. I believe in defense mechanisms, by the way. I think it's a fascinating way to describe that, the effects of sin in our lives. But they serve a purpose, uh, but they and they work. But they work for a season. And when that threat is passed and the season is over and the defense mechanism stays enacted, that's where it becomes really a problem. In our world, Margie, of therapy, uh, that's where it impairs relationships and impairs functioning. And that person remains withdrawn from people that aren't a threat. And that's, that's, that's painful. That really hurts. That's where I have such... That's where I consider it a great privilege to be able to do what I do, for instance, um, to help people over that defense when the threat is passed. They can be healing. That doesn't mean that you don't have the, the hedge. It's great. It really helps. Um, the hedge, the moat, not reconciled necessarily to the offender. Um, but forgiveness is freedom. Freedom to what? To be able to function, Corey Ten Boom called them invalids, uh, our freedom to be engaged with people, we are made in the image of God, and that is to love and be loved by other people who aren't a threat. Toxic relationships build toxic. What is it, toxic? What did you say? Yeah. And so to have non-toxic relationships with non-toxic people, in other words, love, it's a big deal. Yeah, maybe one more, and we'll wrap yeah. That's right. Yep. 
it's so powerful because if you can come to that place, then you're not gonna you're not gonna react to the hurt in a way that's just gonna keep keep it progressing. Absolutely. Family systems, you see patterns repeat over the generations, um, clearly. And I uh, think that's, the, that's what, to me, that's the, that's the one thing, one of the most important messages of, to me of, of the New Testament of Jesus is because that, the power of forgiveness in our world, like I said, even an individual and then at a higher level is, is so powerful and Yeah, and there I'm not going to go into this now. This is Mark Gentilet's big area. Um, that it's the, the geopolitical catalyst for love. There's a phrase um, present in the Old Testament, just is the new too. He would really want me to say that. <laughs> so, um, so you're welcome, Mark. I know you're not. I know you're not listening. So, um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa in our lifetime. Great example of that. I don't know how they pulled that off. Phenomenal. Um, and there it was. Oh my goodness, no. If you don't know what that is or want to revisit it, just Wikipedia. Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it's just worth like, man, that was in our lifetime. It's amazing. So. It's time. I'm happy to stay and answer a question or two. This is um, this is not made up stuff. I'm aware of that. Um, I beg your forgiveness. No, I beg the Lord's because it's against Him only that that I will sin. Um, I beg His forgiveness where I am wrong. Lord, correct me because this is so such an important topic. Um, correct me in such a way that it would not be remembered. Uh, but Lord, uh, in that correction as we walk away from this place, uh, free us with your living word, your word of forgiveness and forgiveness to, uh, to live at peace with you, with ourselves, with those whom we love in such a way that your work would be done in your way and would never lack for any needed thing. Thank you for this sinful woman um, who was forgiven, and from that, uh, she had great love. Um, I pray, Lord, for that same forgiveness that you would increase in us day by day, uh, greater love for, uh, for you and for those around us. I beg this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.